Welcome, witches and ghouls. We are pleased to say that we are a part of the Morbidly Beautiful podcast network and family. Morbidly Beautiful is your macabre home away from home with horror news, reviews, editorials, and more. Morbidly Beautiful supports everyone in the horror community from special effects artists, indie filmmakers, writers, women, LGBTQ folks, and so much more. And we are so happy to be part of the spooky team. Please go to morbidlybeautiful.com to find out more. And now on with the show. I Spit on Your Podcast, a monthly horror podcast brought to you by the Spinsters of Horror. This is a time once a month where I put down my bloody knitting needles and Kelly steps away from the TV to discuss horror movies and sometimes other horror mediums with thoughtful analysis, research, and passion. In this episode, we are discussing the Slumber Party Massacre series. This is also our very first listener's request. Yes, folks, we are now taking those, so send in those suggestions. We will talk about the marketing of slasher films in the 1980s and then explore how the Slumber Party Massacre series all written and directed by women, subverts all kinds of slasher tropes into a satirical bloodbath. So pick your poison and listen on, if you dare. My story around the Slumber Party Massacre series is like a lot of things. I don't remember per se, but I did probably they're not really the the movies that I started watching early, like my early days of like my sleepovers. Yeah, I don't even remember necessarily watching them in my teenage years. It was later. That was like my 20s when I first watched this series. Okay, And I enjoyed it. And I have the kind of, quote, special edition DVD kind of Roger Corman set, which is really great. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's that's my story. Yeah, I think my story, my own story is a little nuanced with this series, uh, just because I remember just when I was first started getting into the horror community and building up my collection, I ran across this series and I considered buying it. And then I saw the look of it that we'll talk about this more later. And I was like, no, I'll, I just put it back on the shelf. But then I read Rugue Moore's Women with Guts, that's their library series. There was an article in it called Only Women Bleed, Drilla Killer Feminism and the Summer Party Massacre by April Snellings. And I loved what I read. And I was like, really? This movie, this series has like these women were directing and stuff like that because I have a back and forth history with uh, slasher films. So I went back to the store and I mm-hmm. bought it mm-hmm. and I've seen all the three movies now. So that Great. that's my story with that. Great. That's a classic Jess story. Read something smart about something. You're like, oh, hey, yeah, no, I'm going to get into that. <laughs> classic me. If you can put make, if you can make something sound intelligent to me. Yep. I'm You're willing in. to engage with it. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> So what are your, like, general franchise likes? And then, I guess, yeah, let's maybe a little divide it up that way. General franchise likes and dislikes, and then, like, maybe specific movie likes and dislikes. Okay, jeez. So as, like, a general franchise, like, I like that it's been directed by three different women, so you definitely can see elements where it is um, a female interpretation being put to something. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. you do see, you know, these fun, interesting characters 
as the series well no I, w- I would say at opposite as the series progress you get less fun interesting characters and that's where my dislikes comes in but mm-hmm. in the beginning you get all these interesting women who are kind of like putting different tropes on the head in terms of being like athletic and you know talking about sports you kind of kind of got a queer element to it and they're also there's a lot of sexuality throughout all these films especially watching it this time around i was like oh wow mm-hmm. there's mm-hmm. a lot about sex going on in all these three films so and that's not something like we know that's part of the slasher franchise but this is more in a very different way i find like it's like a commentary of something and especially mm-hmm. when when it's coming from a uh, female directors it's a series that i do contain i go back to watch each time and i do some see something different every time i watch it especially this time around when we we're going in to talk about these series i was like oh wow there's some really interesting elements happening that i'm curious about what's going on and i want to discuss and i can't wait to discuss more about it i love the idea of a slumber party and i'm gonna get into this later too but i think for all women slumber parties have a special place in all of our hearts especially growing up as teenagers and being involved and having being part of them they were kind of like a safe space for women and I really love the commentary that comes out of these films about the whole idea of a slumber party and like you know it's slumber party massacre but this yeah. whole idea of like there's these women at a slumber party and then there is spaces being violated by mm-hmm. the male gaze by creepy men and you know and showing these women fighting back in yeah. that area yeah absolutely so. yeah that's great no I echo all of those sentiments absolutely I am a slasher movie fan, so I'm happy to be watching slasher movies. I agree. This time around, watching these and reading about it and just looking at it differently, I have a whole new outlook and respect for this trilogy, let's say, and I really, really enjoy it. I think they they generally have a really they have a rewatchability that not all, I think not definitely not all slashers have kind of like you're one and you're done with yes. certain ones but these are definitely have a good rewatchability. I think it's a very underrated series like when people talk about slashers this is not one that comes up. It's usually like your big 3 from the 80s, Friday yep. the 13th, Halloween Nightmare on Elm Street. So it's very overlooked unfortunately, but I think they're very effective slasher movies, so that's really great cuz some of them are pretty generic in the 80s so this is nice because I don't think these are generic whatsoever generally speaking I think all of them have their merit I think there's big differences between them but also a lot of similarities which is what this whole episode will be about which I really really enjoy and again it's so absolutely rare especially in the 80s to have slasher movies all three of them written and directed by women so that is amazing it's totally amazing and very rare and you can tell the difference you absolutely can oh for sure and each film is a product of its time like you can tell mm-hmm. that it is influenced by what is popular in the horror genre yep. at the time so you can and we'll talk about that like the definitely the different elements that be like oh this is why SPM 2 is different than SPM 1 because of yep. these different elements but like but you know they're drawing from what's happening the context of yep. horror movies absolutely. of the time Mm-hmm. Yeah, and pop culture and everything yes. that's happening. Absolutely. They're very smart. Okay, so what are some of your likes, like, maybe per movie? Okay, well... Or dislikes. <laughs> I mainly wrote down dislikes for each movie. For dislikes for each movie? Oh, goodness. Wow. Yeah. I was going to say, like, I... I, I kind of lumped them all together, my likes yeah, and dislikes. Fair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know if anyone knows, like, from everyone knows me from listening to podcasts, and if you listen to our last Spinster versus Spinster on Prom Night 1 and Prom Night 2, I have kind of, like, the similar feelings towards the, the first two films, Summer Party Massacre. Summer Party Massacre 1, I like it more because it 
follows that kind of like 1970s feel and vibe of a slasher. Yeah. And it's more serious to me, and I enjoy mm-hmm. that. Whereas number two gets into that whole rubber reality, campy, you know, and it's like, you know, and I'm like, it doesn't carry the story on the way I wanted to do. It just gets really weird. And then the third one, I, it's like, to me, the third one is almost like a made for TV movie that I'm just like, I'm just watching this to complete the series, but I don't really enjoy it that much. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But one of the things I dislike about all the movies in together is the very unnecessary male gazy nudity that goes on for way too long in mm-hmm. all the scenes. And I and it makes me even cringe now knowing that these are requirements of Roger Corman, mm-hmm. like it, mm-hmm. it, of his exploitation films. Like you had to at least have some form of, of yep. always some violence and always some nudity. And it's just yep. like, okay, I get it. And we get those in the slasher films. Like we know, like we see breast in Friday the 13th. We see in, you know, Halloween, but those are always more like quick, like, it's not always like 100 percent on right. that gaze. It's not gratuitous it. necessarily. Thank you. Yes. yes. Yep. Whereas like the shower scene in the first one, it's gratuitous. I'm like, and then you know, and just like the guys always watching the women as they're changing, mm-hmm. and I mm-hmm. just, you know, it's very unrealistic to me. And so I'm like, okay, well, these scenes are definitely like what men think what a slumber party is. What mm-hmm. is it? <laughs> so, right. Yeah. Those are like my my biggest uh, reasons why I dislike those film the films okay. for those. Yeah. Um, for Summer Party Massacre 1, I don't like the poor usage of our only woman of color, Jackie, because she uh, literally has the best scene in that movie. She does. Dead, all right. No kidding. He's so cold. Is the pizza? Oh. Well, life goes on after all, and eating makes me feel best. And I feel bad, and boy, do I feel bad. Oh, I feel better already. Really, I do. For Slumber Party Massacre 2, I hate TJ so much. Just so much. I hate his voice. I just hate him. He's a dink. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I don't particularly love the ending of Slumber Party Massacre 2. It kind of likes, I don't like when movies this is a trope that I don't like any pretty much any time where they set it up to make it look like it's all a dream or it's all in someone's head I'm just not really into that I'd rather things just be real but then it's also there's a drill at the end so it didn't it's not a dream it's very weird it gets a little weird at the end which I'm not a fan of um yeah and then Summer Party Massacre 3 the acting's not great the end I don't there's aspects of it I don't like there's just a lot of nonsensical actions of, of people in that movie that were it's very strange choices but particularly the scene when their friend they're just two of their friends are literally watching their other friend almost yes. get raped and killed i'm like why why are you just standing why, there and screaming and cowering like- you're free they are just he is distracted this is where yes. you come in like summer party massacre one yes. with weapons of mass destruction like <laughs> weapons of mass destruction come just- in and kill <laughs> yeah. him yeah Hit him on the head. Like, I just thought it was a little... I did not like that. That was dumb. <laughs> I agree with you. That I, I have big issues with the, that scene in that film. Yeah. <laughs> so I think overall, they kind of lose a bit of their effectiveness of, I think, the very strong, strong first one in the original. And folks, we all rank our favorites at the end. I guess you can probably already tell which one's uh, Jess's mm-hmm. rankings. Um, I think they would do very well as standalone films, which sometimes can take me out of it because I like you, like you, Jess, I like some kind of continuity. And if I'm going to have a franchise, there is like Courtney grows. It's a couple of years, five years later, Courtney grows up and she's in the second one. That's fine. But, you know, 80s horror movies and definitely slasher movies and stuff, they kind of did fall into the trappings of like plot and dialogue issues. But for me, it's forgivable because it's a time and that's fine with me. But, you know, if I have to choose some things I don't like, there we 
we go. So do we want to go in and start talking about the marketing of a slasher film? Let's do it. The basketball team is planning a party. A slumber party to bear their souls. All the girls are coming, except Mary and Linda. And they won't be missed. The party begins at 8 o'clock. It's a slumber party for old time's sake. Love it too. Do you think I'm getting better? But be on the lookout for an uninvited guest. Please, please. When the pizza arrives, things really start jumping. Some people may have to leave early. But others will hang around and hang around. pizza i feel better already really i do but for those who stay there'll be plenty of surprises <laughs> and non-stop action <laughs> sure no one's getting any sleep the night of the slumber party massacre close your eyes for a second and sleep forever so we wanted to talk about this because this really kind of came up from the experience that i initially had about judging this series so when I first got into, you know, the horror community and watching more horror films and everyone tends to watch a lot more slashers and I have a kind of, I don't have a love-hate relationship with slashers. I just, I'm not a huge fan. I find them very formulaic and I just don't get as much of a, like a gut punch from them when I'm watching a horror film. But when I first saw the Summer Party Massacre series, of course I pick up the DVD cover and I, mm -hmm. we all know the images of the poster of the driller killer, you know, the drill in between his legs and women mm -hmm. and like scant, scant um, like Scantily clad, scantily clad women cowering in fear. There, you know, there's there's clearly mm -hmm. cleavage. You know, they're mm -hmm. gorgeous women, and all. The, and then like the second poster is like that, and the third, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. it makes you just think like, oh, once again, this is why people think that horror is misogynistic because, you know, we have this image on the cover that makes me mm -hmm. think, well, I'm not gonna watch this. It's just gonna be a bunch of scantily clad women being killed by men. You know, as like Sydney says, like being yep. dumb and running up the stairs instead when she should be running out the fucking door. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and so I like I literally judged it by its cover alone. And so I put the yeah. DVD back and then I walked away, didn't buy it. And then I read this amazing article that I was like, OK, mm -hmm. so I need to not judge a book by its cover. Literally yeah. went in yeah. and I watched the first film and I was like, I'm impressed. This definitely had the nudity aspect of it and it definitely had the, the common trope of the slasher of, you know, going after and murdering a woman and stuff like that. But there were smarter elements to it that I didn't think about. Mm -hmm. And so it made me, and Kelly and I have talked about this a lot back and forth over the years, but the marketing of slasher films. And mm -hmm. I think, Kelly, you would have a little more experience in talking about this just because I don't watch as many slasher films. Mm -hmm. I think we've had like a list where I think I only have like maybe 47, but like only coincidentally just to kind of keep up with the horror community. <laughs> but I you think watch the, the 
the big three was helpful for that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and three, I, but I, big three franchises. You have more experience in watching slasher films and seeing so many posters. So, and yeah. I know that these posters are very suggestive and there's, they're marketed in a way so that people can be like, ooh, get your girlfriend scared. So you'll potentially have sex later. And you're like, ooh. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And we kind of revisited because, you know, we haven't touched on like slasher films per se in probably a couple of years. Yeah. Last was, I think, 2019 for Halloween. So it's been a little while. There's a couple of, you know, resources that we went back to and some of them were really good, you know, and again, using them to kind of base our our discussion and our explorations today, which was really great. And like one of them was there's more than one way to lose your heart. The American film industry, early teen slasher films and female youth because initially a lot of these slasher films were geared towards or marketed towards men or like the ages between, and I'm just throwing this out there, there there's many resources out there, but like between the age of like 14 and 25 or something like that. And then they discovered, this is all very general, then I'll get more specific, but you know, and then they decided realize that, hey, there's actually almost half our audience are women. Let's start gearing and marketing these movies towards women. So going back to obviously the success of movies like Animal House, which is a comedy from 1978, Halloween from 1978 and Prom Night from 1980. Those films were super successful in looking at our slasher films. So studios started blending aspects of hit films to make their own films for profit, right? Because Halloween's super successful. Prom Night, huge hugely successful and it showcased teenagers or young adults as the majority of their cast. There's they yeah. were teenager focused movies. And then they realized, hey, it's teenagers. This is our demographic. This is the market for these types of films. And so they realized like the MPAA and studio producers and stuff like that are like, yep, let's start marketing there are these movies towards what our target audience teenagers, right? And that at the time, the youth were the ones that were seen driving the engine behind the actual American movie audience, right? The movie business, sorry. Oh, sorry. Here's the quote. Market research had shown repeatedly that between the ages of 12 to 20 year olds, accounted for half of the admission tickets and that was evenly divided between men and women and so of course what makes sense is showing in posters in trailers oh what are those things called lobby Lobby cards cards. thank you yeah um images of these teenagers in peril hanging out talking towards each other to get that audience in particularly the female youth the audience right so yes. like from 1970 to 1981 that article really went to death about talking about how if you look at the marketing strategy of films like Halloween and Friday the 13th and Prom Night is they're gearing it they're they're marketing their their trailers their posters and like those lobby cards to young women um, particularly showcase independent female protagonists hetero sexual courtship and female bonding which is going to be really important when we come to talking about the summer party yeah. massacre and like once again the wonderful uh, producer director does not get enough credit deborah hill was an important role in marketing halloween yes, because yes. she wrote all the dialogue of all the three teenagers to make them relatable and to give them commercial appeal so like jamie mm-hmm. lee curtis and uh, one of her PJ friends. PJ Souls? PJ Souls, yeah. So yeah. Jamie Lee Curtis, PJ Souls, like, they come in and they talk like young women. And so women, like ourselves, could see ourselves in these young women. And they were addressing these teenage girls, highlighting female youth content and the bondings, very similar. And then, like, you get this box office strategy to just keep bringing people in this commercial potential of the slasher film. Mm-hmm. You know, like you said, you were seeing you as being harassed by Shadowy Killer. And this is important. And it makes um, the female youth also 
also feel important as well because then you start what we see in Friday the 13th a tough heroine you Mm -hmm. know but there's also Mm -hmm. some romance involved so it's kind of like in a way like a slasher is kind of like the romantic (laughs) the rom-com for horror fans I don't know oh my god slasher films are the rom-com of the horror genre I because I, I don't like I hate rom coms. I'm, I'm not making this. fun of you. That's I'm not, great. I'm not, a, I'm not a huge fan of rom coms, but Either. I don't mind watching a romantic comedy in a horror <laughs> film because I think it's a I I, I, I I appeal to that. Yes, yeah. <laughs> it's more interesting because at the end of the day, either someone's going to end up dead or that woman's going to end up killing someone. Yeah. I, like, or the person of interest. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. And I think those lobby cards are so interesting. Yeah. And I would like, because yeah. like both for Friday the 13th and the Halloween, like these cards, like they're literally like baseball cards, but a female yeah. protagonist in relaxed yeah. romantic poses. Also having platonic interactions with male cast members, heroic deeds, saving a swimmer, jumping from a Jeep. Like it's just showing this female agency in these slasher films in the 1980s. So it's interesting how like earlier on they marketed these films this way. And I think we're kind of seeing a revival in that Mm -hmm. with the 21st Mm -hmm. century slasher films with uh, Happy Death Day and Freaky. Absolutely. And I love that John Carpenter, to go back to that, is, you know, I like when men kind of just can step aside and, and know where their strengths lie. And he was Mm. like, I'm an adult male, so I don't think I could write young female, like female youth dialogue correctly and appropriately. So here you go. You do this. Yeah. Because of course, of course, he's not going to know what teenage girls are. They sound like what they care about, the nuances of being a teenage girl, because he never was one as far as we know. Yeah. So that was really important. And then so, of course, we have female friendly slashers. It's super profitable. Friday the 13th, as we know, there are eight movies in the 80s, wild. So there's success, right? All of these things come to, you know, The Burning, Happy Birthday to Me, The Prowler, My Bloody Valentine, Hell Night with Linda Blair. Um, One was something that was interesting is that they started to more enhance the, quote, femininity of our female leads or survival girls or final girls and less of the, quote, tomboy masculine traits of our final girls of the late 70s, early 80s. We They started just to be a little bit more than that that classic kind of like, well, honestly, Carol Clover, stereotypical final girl, which was really cool. And so, yeah, coming back to Slumber Party Massacre, let's look at when they were released. First one, 1982, in the exact, there was a peak, and that was the boom of the slashers between 1978 to 1984. Part two, 1987, later 80s. Yes, we're jumping into rubber reality. Nightmare on Elm Street's already been released. Hellraiser, different things like that that are a bit more imaginative. And then Slumber Party Massacre 3 is 1990, which is in this weird transitionary phase into the 90s. Yes. where we didn't see a good amount of slashers and a lot of horror movies, well, predominantly slashers, until, obviously, Scream in yeah. 1996. <laughs> well, yeah, I think, like, Scream, and we'll talk about this later, is, like, the revival, kind of, yeah. of the slasher in the 90s, because yeah. Summer Party Massacre 3 is an example about why people are... I think, to me, it exemplifies why people were tired of slashers at the time. Like, yeah. it's the same trope. Okay, yeah. you're just... Yeah. Yeah. Cute women, creepy guys, mm-hmm. someone has mm-hmm. sex people die and okay you know <laughs> yep. by the yep. early 90s we were tired of it we were like yeah. we've seen it now <laughs> but the 80s was yeah the heyday really of slasher movies over 200 in North America alone Jesus, came out wow. in the 80s they were low budget and high satisfaction they were qu- called quote quick payoffs because they would come out running on their f- and have big first weekends due to their marketing the titles their taglines they did not have subtle advertising right their Mm. posters are very lurid their taglines are bold dramatic everything's very provocative slasher movies right look at 
the and folks, if you don't know the movie, like look up the poster. It's really fantastic. Like pieces from 1982, which I actually just watched for the first time this month and I really enjoyed it. It's a slasher movie. So the poster is a chainsaw over like a dead stitched up body of a woman. And it says and its tagline is it's exactly what you think. You're like, oh, <laughs> wow, yeah, you're just at least being honest. Yeah, it's like it's. <laughs> suggesting to the viewer to imagine something truly terrifying and because mm-hmm. that's what I do whenever I see a poster especially for a slasher film it's like how bad can I imagine this like sometimes yeah. I trick myself I'm like <laughs> I, my mind can go to pretty dark places so let's see yeah. where this movie takes me <laughs> yeah but yeah. that's what it's supposed to do plant the seed of intrigue yeah entice the viewers to come in so that you know they can you know be interested in it and then also with the slashers and then it's marketing the, the biggest thing that makes the slasher successful is simplicity. Yes. Go in yep. with the formula. Viewers know what to expect. And they, they know they bought the ticket for their ride because they knew they're going to have a good time. And then they, they yeah. go. And there you go. Exactly. You know, we have Halloween. You know, we have a very iconic poster where it's like the pumpkin. But it's each little section of it looks more and more like a knife. Yeah. The night he came home, you're like, ooh, who is he? I need to know more. Oh, it's based around Halloween. I can't even imagine being alive and of age to be able to see Halloween for the first time in theaters. Like, that would have been uh. incredible. <laughs> incredible. What an experience that would be to, to to see that for the first time and be a part of that whole journey, really, yeah. of, of slasher movies and of Halloween. Because that's, you know, such, such kickstarted everything. So it was really neat. And then, of course, slashers are highly contentious uh, portion of horror movies in our horror genre that we all love. So there has been a backlash since then, especially then. Um, I think we're a little bit uh, a little bit more critical or at least open minded to things now. But at the time, again, Halloween comes out and all then it's like, boom, boom, look at all these movies coming out. Like it was a very interesting time. Roger Ebert thought that like hated slasher movies. They're anti-women. They encourage violence against people, call them dead teenager films. Like he really had no nice things to say generally about slasher films or stalker films, as you might call them. That too. That's very true. As we discussed in our Halloween episode, mm-hmm. it goes to that area too. And when we also get Nora, Laura Mulvey coming out with her argument on seeing slasher films as a demo of violence of the male gaze. So we get all this, this idea of the male gaze coming out. So male slashers are stalking mm-hmm. women. As Kelly said, you know, the male viewers are complicit in this and that a man's fear is being rejected because of a beautiful woman rejects a man and he is in all right to take out his anger on this women right mm-hmm. and so we have a lot of people coming out and that's where we get that idea of like well slasher films are misogynistic and why would you watch that you know it's just and I remember being part of that camp and then learning over time that no they're not like that at all I'm still not a fan of slashers but I can see their value and why women enjoy them and how this idea can be very misleading because when we don't really consider the audiences who are enjoying these films and when you think of it the majority of people who enjoy slasher films are women and queer identifying people. They really enjoy these films because they can identify with the female characters and often your viewers are both male or female and they're often cheering for the final girl at the end. There's a reason why 
there's like this sense of empowerment and we see this throughout the decades you know going from early 1970s with our first ones being you know Black Christmas and Halloween to you know now with like Happy Death Day but in between we had Scream and all that stuff like people were able to identify with these female characters in the films so it's like two camps there's two Mm -hmm. camps I think to this where you can see these movies as and also they kind of lump in some of slasher films get lumped into the quote women in danger films yeah Um, a lot of the thrillers too around that time uh, were lumped into that as well so you can either be the camp of seeing them as celebrations of misogyny or a damning indictment towards it so you either be like you're just showing me what is real in the world real women's fears and anxieties or you're you are celebrating violence against women and that's just where you're going to land right and that's kind of where some women and some people go to because it's and that makes sense and like the 80s was a really interesting time too um there was i remember i've read about this for years but because of the 80s there were some suspicions that this rise of like violence against women particularly like started in the 70s huge in the 80s was a backlash against second wave feminists so there's like oh no women and you need to know your role. We're going to kill you and exploit you a lot in film. So again, I think we've all come come away from that. But at the time, that was a huge, huge comment towards them. Oh, yeah. It was just like, oh, well, of course, there's more violence towards women because everyone's watching these violent slasher horror films. And then you're just sitting back being like, wait, violence towards women has been happening since like the fifth century. Like yeah. the <laughs> dawn like, of time. Did, since the dawn of time. Like, do, does no one remember the witch persecutions in the 16th, 15th <laughs> century? Like, no, there's been violence against women for a while. So it's really interesting talking. So we get those aspects. And there was two quotes that I pulled from this article that we read where it was talking about why women derive enjoyment from slasher films. Like, and one was uh, Isabel Pinot, and she writes in her book, Recreational Terror, Women and the Pleasures of Horror Film Viewing. And like Kelly, you, you already pointed that out, that a lot of women tend to enjoy these films because they tend to articulate legitimate fears that women have about male violence. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to point that out as important because when we get into talking about Summer Party Massacre 1, that is that film. It mm-hmm. is literally like male violence. Like this is, we are seeing what women legitimately fear when they step outside their home. And it's, you know, an ability to kind of give, mm, I don't want to say like not credence, but almost like pointing out that these re- this reality exists. This violence towards women does exist. And mm-hmm. it's unfortunate that we have to show it in a, sl- well, no, we've already talked, discussed this. That we show these truths in the horror film because they show people the things that they're uncomfortable with. Mm-hmm. But I also enjoy how Robin Wood talks about that the most disreputable genres tend to give more voice to the disenfranchised groups because mm-hmm. they have more freedom to do whatever they want. Yeah. And it made me think, I'm like, yes, that is true. Slashers, while they do tend to follow a formula, they do have a little more freedom to give, uh, to talk about issues, to bring things forward mm-hmm. because they usually focus around disenfranchised people, be able to engage in the topics that they're bringing up. Absolutely. But yeah, she also says, which is what I thought was really interesting, and I'm definitely going to use Use it in my horror homeroom essay, but she notes that some of the tactics that are used by our final girls or our survival girls in these slasher movies are often those that are recommended in self-defense yes. classes for warding off male assault. You can learn how to defend yourself by watching these movies. And we love seeing our final girls, our women survivors at the end. We can root for them. And that's, I know we have talked about them. So many people talk about the final girls, but it's amazing to see that because that's not always our reality, unfortunately. 
So I love that you brought that up and I'd love to read her book, but that's absolutely correct. And this franchise, which we'll get into when we talk about each movie separately, is a massive theme throughout the entire series. And and it's amazing. It's amazing because they do they don't necessarily explicitly talk about it necessarily, which is great. It's more like subtext a little bit, which is which is fantastic. So it's like you kind of have to sit back and really take these movies in to to see these themes sometimes. And I I love that so much. So, yeah, thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, thank you. has got some weird friends. I have got the fastest growing bit I have ever had in my entire life. I mean, look at this thing. <laughs> I think your sweetheart has been taking too many diet pills. Here's a chicken sandwich if you want to She should have listened to her sister. Don't pick her all the way. Because when she and her band get ready to party. Do anything you want to. Go time. It's more than just a great time. I didn't know girls really did this stuff. It's Slumber Party Massacre 2. Now it's time for the fun part. He's in his house somewhere. It's 9 o'clock, I get ready to rock. My motorcycle's out of hock. Jump on back if you hold on tight. Bastard. You killed Mallory. Because Slumber Party Massacre 2. If you go, don't go all the way. Oh God, anybody got any tranks? So now we will start talking about Slumber Party Massacre trilogy, subverting the slasher. Before we get there, though, I have a question for you, Jess, which you've already kind of answered. And I also really think I know the answer already. But for the folks listening at home... Why don't you spell it out for us? Why don't you like slasher films? (laughs) And I brought this up because out of jest for sure, jest as in a joke, in our Facebook coven group, I did a little (laughs) poll and I was like, who's a fan of slasher movies? And Jess is the only one that said no. And I just thought it was really hilarious that she was in minority and I like to put fun (laughs) at Jess. But Yes, there on there's this Wikipedia list that I was looking at out of all it's definitely not a definitive list, but like over 200 slasher movies were made in the 80s. And now I was sad to see I've only watched 64 out of that list. Jess, yours was 47. Um, so not that far away from me, which was I think the, the big three franchises helped you out there. But uh, helped me out, too, because there's so many of those movies. Uh, but I thought it was interesting. So why don't you tell us why you dislike slasher movies? Yes. OK, so. I dislike slasher movies because, like I've said a couple times before, I find them very formulaic. Once I get into the film, I know what to expect, what's going to happen. You can almost, like, point out who's going to die next, who the the final girl is, and I sometimes find them a little too male-gazy for me, and I just, I find that boring. So that's where I come to slasher films. I find them boring. Mm. I enjoy horror films that are going to like have a twist in it that's just like come out of nowhere. Like I want to walk away with a gut punch. I appreciate watching slasher films in the sense of just having a good time with people and I'm not really paying attention to the movie. 
And mm-hmm. I do that. I do that with one of my partners. He's a big slasher fan, uh, films of slasher films, and I know you are too, Kelly. And I will. I have no problem sitting and watching them with people because I do see their value, where they come from in the horror genre, and kind of sitting down and watching the Summer Party Massacre series and pointing out some of the elements that we were going to discuss about. I was like, okay. I definitely see where the slasher films have their merit and their value in the horror genre, and I will never 100%, you know, say to anyone, like, like, da da slasher films are not good. Like, if someone came to me and <laughs> says, like, you know, slasher films are so misogynistic, then I'll be like, no, 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 let's have a discussion, and, uh, and you know, and I can, you know, I'm not going to change your mind, but let's discuss this. Let's talk about this. Mm-hmm. But I'm not a fan myself, mm-hmm. but I see their value. I just find them formulaic and boring. So at the end of the day, they bore me. They bore me. Yeah. Boring You're now. boring. <laughs> You're boring. <laughs> well, that's essentially what I I assumed. My answer for you would be that that you enjoy atmospheric films. Yes, I do. Slashers have zero atmosphere. It's not what they are. Um, but also, you are very much into cerebral horror. I am. And that's why this whole podcast exists. So, <laughs> absolutely. And I'm not, and, and obviously, we're talking about a very smart uh, slasher franchise today, but there's so many of them that are not smart. They are fully popcorn movies. Um, and I, I like love that. them for that. So, I like that yeah. term, popcorn movies. Yep, popcorn. Horror. Popcorn there literally is a slasher film <laughs> called Popcorn. Yep, exactly, right? <laughs> <laughs> so there we go, folks. You heard it here. So let's get into the Slumber Party Massacre series. So how does the series subvert all of these horror tropes, these slasher tropes? What's different about these movies? We're going to talk about each individual film. We came across this. We came across this really excellent article called Female Authorship in the Slumber Party Massacre Trilogy by Lindsay Broyles. And this was so amazing. So I want to say that, again, this horror series from the 80s is all written and directed by women. And you know what? If you took these films by face value at the titles and posters alone, that would be hard to see that this franchise is very, very, very unique. And I get that. But this was kind of the point. These movies wanted to flip that script, turn all these tropes on their head and comment and have a commentary on slasher movies as a whole. And like you said, Jess, each one is kind of representative of the time period that they were in and all the movies, all the horror movies and slashers and pop culture that was happening around that time, 82, 87, and 90. So let's get into the first one. Like Jess said, the original kind of idea and screenplay was written by Rita Mae Brown, and then Amy Holden Jones came in to kind of redirect, rewrite, and everything originally intended to be a satire slasher films. It's a dark comedy. I think it excels at that. I think that's great. (laughs) Yeah. And I love it how in that series, so you get, so especially for the first film, you get three different perspectives in this film. You're getting Rita Mae Brown's perspective because Amy Holden Jones, when she came in, she took the original script and she kind of, she did made a bunch of rewrites. Um, And then of course, then you get Roger Corman comes in, who is an exploitation producer. He's famous for that. So of course he has to have his elements in this film. Like Kelly said, the original script for this film was that of a slash um, a slasher satire, but it had a lot of overt lesbian text to it because Rita Mae Brown was a very vocal lesbian feminist in the eighties, in leading of the second of second wave feminists. So it's very clear that, and I like how Amy Holden Jones kind of keeps that in there, but mm-hmm, she, it remains more mm-hmm. of subtext. Yeah, we know yeah. that Roger Corman was flat out not interested in any of the feminist messaging of this film. He made fans that were meant to be titillating to young audiences and make their parents blush. He was all about profit over the quality of the film. 
Whereas we know, and we, we talk about this with the other three directors, these are all, all three, Amy Holden Jones, Deborah Brock, and Sally Mad- Madison came in. These are all women who came into the, into the industry. They were given an opportunity to direct films, which is very rare for women in the 80s. So they had to kind of play Roger Corman's games, but you can still see where they had their influence in the films and we're definitely mm-hmm. going to talk about in each of them but re, uh, Amy Holden Jones went in there respecting as much as the original script as she could but mm-hmm. still bringing it up to what would make main audiences want to see this film absolutely interesting thing about Roger Corman is that yes he had nudity requirements we had to check off those boxes to get a pass and a thumbs up by him but he also hired women at each level of filmmaking Interesting enigma, that man. (laughs) He likes blood, boobs, and violence. Hey, me too, Roger Corman. Thank you. (laughs) So you did have to, you know, tick off all those boxes. Yeah, Amy Holden Jones said that that shower sequence in the beginning was a requirement from Corman. So she shot it because she had to. You know, that's fine. I get that. Talking about Rita Mae Brown. And yes, that was... A really interesting thing to to learn about this movie. Because so I think, like, face on, you watching this movie, you will see that there are women in, quote, traditionally male roles. You have our, sorry, electrician. All of the women in this movie are having more, again, quote, traditional male roles. But uh, our young women, our slumber party ladies, are athletes. They discuss sports. At one point, I'm like, oh, God, they're still talking about this baseball game. I mean, it was baseball. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, sports. Baseball. Sports ball. Yeah. Um, but that was that was great. They're even calling their gym teacher, right? Their gym teacher is a woman, also lives alone with cats. There's a bunch of cats in this movie. <laughs> all, all these the women movies. have cats. They all have all cats. the movies, all these women have cats. <laughs> <laughs> you know, point, point taken. You have Pam, our handy woman, short hair. She fixes things, is fixing the, the peep, gave a peephole to the, um, coach Jana. There we go. Thank you. Um, so her subtext is like a quote, butch lesbian, but she can also handle a drill. She's doing things herself. You know, our gym teacher lives alone, but yeah, the girls call their gym teacher. They have that kind of relationship with their teacher, which is really great and respectful and just generally nice to see, but to talk about sports. And that is really, really neat. These young women are physically strong, they're active, and they're empowered by their athleticism, which is really neat. And again, you don't see this. I remember during our like watch party, thinking about other 80s films where there's teenage girls or even like 70s, late 70s, I'm thinking of Carrie, like they're always hating phys ed. Yes. Young girls, we don't want to get active. We don't want to sweat. We don't want to mess up our hair. Just like really shallow shit that they show that women, quote, are like. But in this, absolutely not. They're playing basketball. They're having a good time. They love sports. And I love that about this movie. And it was really, really interesting to kind of throw in this lesbian subtext. It was really, really interesting to read about that. Yeah, it's showing us these independent women. And we also see, like, growing independent women. One of the things, uh, the themes that came up in this film that was addressed in the essay was this loss of innocence. We see our first character, um, She's when she's waking up, she's putting all her toys and dolls away and stuff like mm-hmm, that. And mm-hmm. she's, you know, so she's like, okay, I'm 18 years old now. I should be able on my own. I don't need to have all these dolls around. And of course, what kind of slumber party is this? It's not just any kind of slumber party. There's smoking weed they're drinking they're you mm-hmm. know they're also having cigarettes they're ordering in pizza also one of the big things i've <laughs> noticed in all these films yep. is women eating and i loved it yep. i was like yeah, they're eating too. junk food they're yep. drinking and it's just like 
And I always point this out in all times of other types of films, we often don't see women eating. And if we do see women eating, they're usually eating a salad or they have like a piece of something. But no, yeah. we got Twinkies. We've got margaritas. We've got champagne. We've corn got dogs. pizza. We've got corn dogs. <laughs> we've got cookies. Like, and I'm talking about yep. all the food throughout all the films. Yes, like each absolutely. film has its own. But I'm absolutely. like, I'm sitting I'm like, that's a that's a pretty awesome sleepover. I love it. Yes. Yes, that is very relatable in our adult years as well. We get a bunch of us ladies together, and that's that's going to happen. Since you brought up the food overall, absolutely. I want to say a shout out to Slumber Party Massacre 3, because what really stood out to me is that they're like cheersing. They're like, cheers to beer bellies, cheers to beer thighs. And I was like, yes, thank you. Because so much of, and all of these movies no one is shamed for anything. Yes, They're not shamed no for what they shaming. wear, what they like, their weight, their appearance, who they sleep with, if they're sleeping with somebody, if they're not sleeping with anyone. Nowhere, nowhere does that happen for shaming or putting anybody down. They're complimenting each other. They're having a nice time together. And you don't often see that. And that is 82, 87, 90. Like, times when we still weren't seeing these types of interactions between women. So that is, I think, one of the biggest things that we can take from these movies. And and it's because of it's women that wrote and directed these films. Mm -hmm. This is these are female centric films. Love that. Love that. Cheers to beer thighs, folks. (laughs) (laughs) And so earlier when I was talking about these films, um, it starts off the theme of sex in the first one. And I think it's really interesting that this article talks about this idea of the fear of penetrative sex, mm-hmm. which we all always often associate with the loss of innocence. You are no longer a virgin when you have pen- penis in the vagina sex, right? Yep. And this is what your life. It changes <laughs> your life. You're, you know, and then there's always, you know, but back in the day, always this anxiety that the reason why women are lesbians is because they're afraid of the penis and being mm-hmm. penetrated by it. And of course... Mm-hmm. Our driller killer literally is carrying around with him a phallic symbol the whole time. And the way he wields it is like an erect penis all the time. Sorry, we're very not PC in this episode. No. (laughs) Hey, we're going to call it like it is. It's a dick. It's a a dick. (laughs) But it's this loss of innocence. This driller killer, he is this embodiment of women's uh you know of a, a, a sexual fear and i yeah. at one point like i even said in my own notes like he's this embodiment of rape and sexual trauma for women and just that mm-hmm. fear that women have when they're coming into you know their own sexuality and finding themselves and they want to feel safe and comforted when they're in that moment because it's a very intimate moment with someone to have that for the first time but also interesting too penis and vagina sex is not the only type of loss of innocence sorry that was a bit of a ramble there Yes. Oh, absolutely. It still counts if it's in the behind. So, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's a definitely, you know, a quote, virgin's fear of sex. But what's also interesting, you know what, let's jump into during our watch party. You noticed this during, um, yeah, during our watch party, you noticed this. So Valerie and Courtney have a really interesting dynamic. Let's talk about them for a minute. Yes, yes. They're our kind of coded, coded virginal girls, particularly Valerie. You know, she doesn't go to the girls, you know, rambunctious slumber party. She stays home to hang out with her, you know, just hang out alone, essentially, and, you know, kind of babysit her She's teenage sister. She's, she's making Kool Aid. She's she yep. is like the virginal. Like I, you yeah. know, the coach Jana calls her. She's like, I'll check things out, you know. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. She's she's kind of like the the reliable one. She's yeah. like very pretty, but very quiet and shy. And so she's kind of coded that way. 
But during our watch party of these two films, you just noticed these posters on the wall of Courtney. And folks, if you blink, you'll miss them. But there's two signs. There's a slow sign and a stop sign. And the slow sign has, and they both have handwritten notes on them. And so one says, take it slow and enjoy it. The other one says, don't stop or I'll scream. Holy fuck. There is throughout all of these films, and especially in this one, an underlying aspect of female sexuality, a fear of men, a fear of sex with men, and they all tackle it in different ways, okay? And a little bit less so in in third one, which we'll talk about, but... Holy moly, like folks, that is really intense. But also, again, an underlying theme to these movies is the the fear of sex, sexuality, and female sexuality. And this idea of, because we also, like, Courtney and Valerie, they talk about sex. They talk yes. about masturbation. Yes. They yes. talk about, you know, they're looking at the playgirl yeah. and kissing a boy. And so it's like, yeah. you, right away. And then, of course, we also know in the, the, at the next door, the women are, you know, the one girl, uh, I don't want to say Trish, no, Trish is the main girl that lives Trish there. Trish is the main girl, but there is her friend who Valor- has her, yes. who has her partner no, over, Valor- and she's yeah. having sex, and she's like, "Was I good the first time? Like, how yeah. was it?" And, oh. You know, the girls are kind of teasing her at the same time too, but at the same yeah. time too, there's is in jest. They're just like, you know, like you're having sex. It's cool. Like, he he he. Yeah. But there's also this aspect. So sex is all throughout this movie. The other aspects of in this film that is part of the sexual exploitation is the voyeurism. And this mm-hmm. is a common mm-hmm. theme in all three of the summer party movies. Is yeah. Men constantly watching women without their knowledge. Yes. And yep. saying things like, oh, what did we do to deserve this? Nothing. You are perverts. You are standing there watching these women change in the sacred space among mm-hmm. their sisters and just chatting and having a good time stuff like that and you're just standing there like perverts watching them and it happens all throughout the movies and like and I will get into this how it happens in all three films men violate the safe space for women they mm-hmm. they void mm-hmm. they watch them from afar you know they're yeah. violating that sacred space and then they invite themselves in crashing the summer party and it all Every becomes time. all about the guys you know the, and then once again it's like so then women don't feel like they have this safe space and when they when the men do violate these space the women have to fight for their lives to survive yeah and the men are useless in yes. all of these movies <laughs> They're pretty much useless. They they come in. Yes, they crash their party. But then once shit goes down, they attempt to try to like save and help and protect the women. But they get killed mercilessly. They are of no help whatsoever. The women of the Slumber Party Massacre series save themselves. And that is amazing. But also what is extra awesome is that they come together and they band together and help each other. They all have to survive. They want everyone to survive. So they help each other out. There's this really cute and funny example about these boys. So Neil and Jeff get together and they kind of talk about why they shouldn't, why they should prank the girls or whether or not they should or shouldn't. They say, let's go by and scare the girls tonight. You know, you know how girls love to scream. The other guy's like, "Mm, I don't know. And he's like, what's the worst that can happen? I mean, so they get mad at us. So what? And then the one guy's like, they can beat the shit out of us. And he's like, oh, that's right. We did flunk Jim. Hello. Uh It's true. These men are useless. But what men are generally good for in these movies are being creeps, honestly. Mm -hmm. You know, even like the friends are fine, but they, yeah, like you said, they forcibly come into these young girls' safe space. And then the girls are just like, all right, I guess it's fine. You're invited. Ha, the boys are here. Isn't this funny? You know, but they do come in. There's constant like intrusion into their space, either visually, thematically. And then we have our driller killer, right? Well, our driller killer, he he takes the 
takes like the the voyeurism and the the creepy voyeurism to a whole new level. Yes, and like I said yeah. earlier, the driller killer he has no name. He is almost faceless for most of the movie. You don't see a lot of his face until more at the end. And he is the embodiment of rape and sexual trauma for women. Yeah, the way he speaks, especially like he doesn't speak much in the often. He is often just looking at them and watching. Doesn't say from anything until the end. He doesn't say anything to that. And the way he speaks to uh, oh, Trisha yes. at the end of the film is very like you made me do this because you're beautiful and pretty so I, I need to I do this you. to you I love you you, you know is, you want it absolutely which is yep. the language yep. of a rapist of yep. uh, you know a molester of you because you're a woman this is what you wanted and this is what I'm going to give you and we're like well we never asked for this to begin with we were just living our lives and having a good slumber party and you invaded this space absolutely putting your intentions on us which was never anything we wanted to begin with absolutely and adding to that never wanted to begin with comes in a bit of our lesbian subtext right so you know and reading this article it says that um, the inclusion of the line you know you want it firmly grounds the moment in the context of sexual assault with the added layer of thorn russ thorn our driller killer preying on women who are quoted as lesbian implying forced quote corrective male sexuality upon women who exist outside of the hetero Sexual, sexual framework. So, I mean, if you're recoding it and reading it that way, it's like even more deeply, deeply upsetting for this man to come in with his drill to kill all of these women that, but and a bunch of them being coded lesbian. And innocent unknown women too. We don't this the driller killer yeah. has we don't we know that he's just an escaped patient from a, yes. a mental hospital. Yeah. We don't know we like and other slashers or some kind of like relationship or some some reason why the killer is after these people. But no, he is just he to me when I watched that first film, he is just the epitome of male violence. Like he is just the embodiment of that that exist in our culture that that i that that fear and so when the girls finally defeat him at the end i find that ending very tra- like i don't want to say traumatizing but it's they For are them traumatized. it is they are traumatized <laughs> it's it's not the typical ending of like oh you yeah. know like police show up they arrest him they're like you're okay girls and the girls yep. like yeah i know fine like we see these in slasher films no these women are crying they're sobbing they're in shock and, it's yep. and then it just yep. ends and you're like and it ends yeah that is Absolutely. that is realistic like you know if you had just finished fighting for your life like I spent an hour just fighting for your life and you witness all your friends die you are not going to be like okay I'm good now let's go just do something else you're going to be sobbing and crying and you know and that is usually often what happens especially after a sexual trauma yeah like the sun doesn't come up and everything's fine the police arrive and everything's fine absolutely not it's dark it's middle of the night it's alone it's very quiet and we just show shots of all of the three girls' faces. And absolutely, like, this is it. Like, this is just the reality of it. And now they're just left alone to figure out where to go from here. And there is no final girl. I know I said this, but there is no final girl in this in this movie. It's because they're all equal. They're all final girls. There's no archetypes. There's none of that, like, caricatures of women, characters of being human beings. We don't have those kind of archetypes in this film, whereas in generalized slasher films, I agree, even as a fan, that they are quite formulaic. You read anything by John Kenneth Muir. He has sections and whole books about slashers and this wonderful segments about essentially the formula for, for slasher films, but multiple women Like, they band together, they survive at the end. It's not just one. They come together. They're not caricatures. They're actual real women in these real-life situations. And I absolutely love that about this movie. Time to move on? Yeah, let's jump into Slumber Party Massacre 2. Yes! (laughs) (laughs) Clearly Kelly's favorite, because... 
Whenever I watch this right away, I'm like, yeah, this is a Kelly movie. <laughs> Absolutely. Predictable. So, so now we're at Slumber Party Massacre 2 from 1987, the campier horror musical comedy, a rubber reality with fantastical dream sequences, bigger and brighter kills, practical effects, all of that wonderful shenanigans from the 80s because it's 87 by now. So boom, we've had our rubber reality. We're hitting the ground running with this one. So written and directed by Deborah Brock. And again, coming in to make sure we have a feminine or female voice and to create another female centric movie. Back to fears of sexuality. But this time we bring back Courtney. And so it's five years later. And Courtney is now 17 years old. Yes, 17 years old and has lived through that terrible trauma of that night at the slumber party. So she has some residual issues. Yeah. Um, Unfortunately, her sister Valerie, as we learn, tropey, but is in an institution. She's in hospital because she had a hard time after the events of Slumber Party Massacre 1. This time we have musical creative women Whereas, you know, the first one we had athletes. I think that's part of like the fun thing too, because they're all musicians. And I just think that adds in a fun aspect to this movie. Well, yeah, well, Deborah Brock had total freedom when it came to the production of this film because uh, Roger Corman had already sold the international distribution, right? So she was just like, all right, I'm going to do what I want. So she made it campier in that she was inspired by the Rocky Horror Picture Mm -hmm. Show. Um, And she doesn't necessarily herself saw the film as feminist, but she really did want to emphasize that relationship between the girls and their agency. And what you say, well, they're in a band, Mm -hmm. you know, a pretty decent band from the sounds of it. And then when you're in a band, you have that agency, which is often not often in a slash scene in a a slasher genre so that itself is a satire in its own right and you're you're right it explored this film explores more the complexities of female trauma after gendered violence Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know Courtney she is reaching sexual maturity maturity she's thinking about sex like she's having you know dreams about uh, this guy she's really interested in she can't wait to see him and he kisses Mm -hmm. her but uh, someone I can relate to this in this film but having experienced some form of sexual trauma earlier in life and when you start to open up yourself on your own sexual maturity things things start to happen you start to have anxiety attacks you start to feel some sort of shame and because you have a lot of confusing feelings Mm -hmm. around sex Mm -hmm. because you had had this experience that kind of ruined it for you yeah and this is what we see in this film oh yes and i already loved this movie but reading about it just absolutely made me love it even more. Actually, it's absolutely fascinating because again, on surface level, there's a lot of things I think that you would not get unless you really sat down with it and maybe read somebody else's interpretation or just sat down with some of these ideas of how somebody else read this movie. And it really just blew my mind. And I love it so, so much. So in this movie, our driller killer, and again, if you've seen this movie, it is kind of bonkers, right? On, again, surface value, surface level, it seems nonsensical. Absolutely. And there's still aspects that don't have any reason to them. Like why our driller killer speaks in rock lyrics. Who cares? Like a rockabilly, yeah. yeah. (laughs) But he is hot. 
Okay, so he is more a symbol than an actual character overall. And so, and again, going through this really great article, this was what was really interesting. He's coded as masculine, definitely. He still has our drill to kill attached to our guitar. He's very overtly sexual, but they give him a little bit more, quote, feminine traits, right? Eye makeup, campy musical interludes. There's aspects of more of like an emotional sensitivity that there's like a bit of a humanity to him. Whereas Russ Thorne in the first one, yikes, that man is stone cold psycho. He is, absolutely. Yeah. So, and in this one, this driller killer, he's super handsome. He's hot, folks. He's handsome. He's mysterious. And he obviously is a desi- an object of sexual desire. He, if you are a young lady, as I once was, and it's still relevant today, but a musician, there is an allure Ugh. to them, an allure to a musician, especially one yes. that's maybe in a metal band, r- hard rock, oh God. anything that's a little <laughs> bit more subversive, right? Um, it makes them My even... kryptonite is a man with a guitar. <laughs> exactly. How many of us have fallen for pants or hearts for musicians, right? So I get that. There's a dangerous, there's a danger to him, a dangerous allure, a dangerous sexuality that is to him. He's not a disfigured slasher. He's not wearing a mask. He is a fantasy object for the female gaze, which I loved about this. I love that somebody brought that because I never really thought about that. But because this movie is very fantastical, it makes sense for him to be that way. And initially, he only exists in Courtney's head until, oh, sorry, until he isn't anymore. He becomes like a literal physical manifestation of her anxieties and fears of having sex for the first time and of male sexuality because of her very gendered violence from the first film. Yeah, like he is trauma personified. Mm-hmm. He is, the every time we have seen him appear in her mind is whenever she had any kind of sexual feeling yep. towards Matt, the, uh, Matt, yeah. the, the, pro, the protagonist, yeah. the, the main love yes. interest, right? And she's just like, ooh, I'm very confused. And I remember thinking that was interesting that she would have those fears and it would make sense for someone who has experienced sexual trauma yeah. you to, when you feel that way, all of a sudden like all of a sudden have your dream ruined by the image of the person who hurt you but he is like you said made to look good made to like he's not he doesn't look like Russ Thorne Mm -hmm. he is and like you said he's a band member she's also in a band so there's like this part of me where like is this does the driller killer really exist is it really Courtney who's doing all these murders like is she just kind of like split personality in the sense of like you know attacking those people because she's you know afraid of her own sexuality or what's coming around I don't know like that's where I, Mm -hmm. I get lost in the film when all of a sudden he manifests into real life. I'm like, okay, so now you're real and just murdering everyone? How did this happen? Mm-hmm. I like to think that like maybe Courtney started killing everyone and she manifested herself as the driller killer, mm-hmm. but that's more of a stretch and I'm in my book. In my book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we have this like psychological break, right? She has her burgeoning sexuality. Yes, he comes into her mind, either daydreams or actual dreams. He's triggered when her memories from her past trauma come in, her sexualized terror comes in. But what's great and interesting is that he actually manifests in the real world right before she's about to actually have sex for the first time. And that's when he kills Matt. So the very first time that that is about to happen, bang, he's here now. So, and he is this, I liked how the the person in the article talked about, he is like the specter of sexual and physical violence from the past, which of course 
everything. And Courtney was the one that was reading the Playgirl. She, her curiosity, her sexual curiosity has been piqued for years, you know? Yeah. So she's been very curious and then fearful, extra fearful. I think there's the generalized fear and anxiety, like you said, Jess. Like, here's your non-traumatized sexual anxiety of, but she also, like, she hears her friends having sex, but she hasn't had sex yet. There's that pressure and that fear. Not that her friends ever pressured her, but that generalized thing, just living in the world as a young woman and then having these thoughts and then having that violence, uh, you know, five years ago, there's a lot going on there. And in her mind, this super dangerous sexual concept, this symbol, there's like, he's overtly sexual towards her as well. Like very sexual towards her, which I'm sure is very uncomfortable if you are uncomfortable with sex and have a fear of all of that or absolute hesitation from very valid reasons. Like there's this moment when he sticks out his tongue and he's like simulating oral sex towards her and he's like, holy moly. Yeah. Imagine being a woman who's already, you know, doesn't know much about sex and you already have your own fear and anxiety. Then, like you said, add that extra trauma of having, you know, either been raped or molested. And then you're just like a whole barrel laughs once you do have sex for the first time. Because then, you know, often, and I I speak from my own personal experience, when you have had some form of uh, sexual trauma done to you in the past, when you do have sex for the first time, it's terrifying because you have all these triggers, all these feelings that come Mm -hmm. up. And you, and like you, when you said, he appears as a specter. A woman will never truly ever be free of the person who molested her as a child mm-hmm. or raped her as an as a as a woman. It will always that 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 specter will always be a part of your mm-hmm. life, and you have to constantly fight against that specter and to get over those feelings of fear and anxiety and find that safety within the person that you're being intimate mm-hmm. with and being comfortable with your own sex and sexuality. And this is where I kind of relate to Courtney in this because it's terrifying mm-hmm. and it takes years of work and practice to get through that and. I feel like that is really important, that uh, aspect that you talked about him being a specter, that he will always Mm -hmm. exist in her mind Mm -hmm. until she will feel free of him. But I don't think you'll ever fully feel free of when something like that has happened to you. Absolutely not. And like, she is not well. Like, she is performing very well. And I think that she thought that she was okay, but she is not okay because she's having these dreams. Her sister's already hospitalized. You know, her mom does show concern. Yeah, but her mom is still focused on her sister. Like, oh, we're going to go see Valerie this weekend in the hospital. And she's like, it's my birthday this weekend. So it's like, imagine being a young woman, you're trying to get over the sexual trauma and you're constantly being reminded of it because you have to go and see your sister in the hospital. And then now all of a sudden you're into this burgeoning sexuality and you're now dealing with all the triggers that come with yeah. that. And you're just like, it's a mess. I think one of the interesting things, and like we were reading about this and then during our watch party, one of our listeners, Laura, um, she was there. She made a really great point. And then she wrote something for us that I'll read for you now. Um, it was, you know, it was interesting because Courtney has this trauma, this like gendered violence and this like sexual fear and this anxiety and stuff but then she's having kind of sexy fantasies about somebody harming her and then Laura brought up this really good point that like that can be helpful for getting over this and I thought that was really interesting so I wanted her to write something for us so I'm going to read it for you now. Slumber Party Massacre 2 highlights the often overlooked aftermath of surviving an assault. Although the villain in Slumber Party Massacre did not rape his victims, he violated their bodies in unforgettable ways via drilling them. This obvious metaphor for penetration and violent nature of attack on her friends has caused our poor protagonist to to recon with some very uncomfortable feelings. These confusing feelings are familiar to those who have survived violent attacks. Dreams are where we process memories and emotions. It's a time when we are reckoning with the events of our daily lives. It's no surprise to me that Courtney's dreams lean intensely lusty towards the driller killer who is now manifested as a handsome greaser guitarist. 
During my first year of college, I survived a violent sexual assault. I would often dream about how I could have fought the rapist. With friends and therapists, I talked about ways I could have avoided the situation. Alone, I would fantasize about the rapist being another person, making the memory easier to digest and move past or even disassociate completely until I was distracted. Role-playing a scene of an assault can provide an arena to explore these confusing feelings. Like a fantasy, a survivor has control. This consensual non-consent or, quote, rape play provides our, quote, victim with the power to stop or change the event at any time. It can provide a sense of control or ownership over the scene, which would otherwise be traumatic. Whether it's through dreams, fantasy, or roleplay, the confusing feelings after an assault will find an outlet to manifest. It's a way to cope and compartmentalize, and most importantly, a way to survive. Thank you very much, Laura. Thank you so much, Laura. So let's uh, let's jump into the final film, which is uh, Summer Party Massacre 3 that was directed by uh, Sally Madison. I would say, generally, kind of the darkest weirdest entry in this series i agree i when i read this person's interpretation of this film i was like really Mm -hmm. okay Mm -hmm. go back and watch the film like now i see this interesting once again we're moving into sex sexual trauma but this time we have a killer who has motivations and his motivations is based on the fact that he was a survivor of child sexual abuse yes yes we kind of and i think again i think this movie would stand on its own better than being a part of this series because we've now moved away from our women and now we're focusing more and i don't think it's like handled the best way it's like a little confusing and yes if you didn't really like read about it or think much about it be even more confusing so I like it on its own for its own thing and its own merit but I it's it's just unfortunate that now we're focusing more on this guy not that he doesn't deserve his story to be told and his experience to be known it's very valid that happens to boys and men as well but it doesn't fit within I think the, the the overall generalized theme and ideas about these films in some ways there's other ways that I think it's still very strong. But yeah, so the Ken, Ken is the young man. He was, so we're seeing in this movie, abused, sexually abused by his cop uncle, unfortunately. But here we have this attempt to actually humanize our driller killer. Like our yeah. first one, he's a black-eyed psychopath. The second one, he's a manifestation of trauma. And now he's a human being because he he's like a good looking young man. He has a girlfriend like he is trying to go about his life. But so he's more of a like a a boyfriend, a human, a boyfriend than like a sadist or, you know, that type of. But sexuality for him is also the trigger. Literally every time somebody reaches down to touch his penis to do something or like handle him in any way in that way, that's when he's triggered and he freaks out. And then there's just an increase in these like psychosexual killings. Right. And it's that weird. The one scene where he does does kind of get triggered and kind of creeped out and he's like I can't do this though his girlfriend doesn't know at the time but hey he's like okay I'll go down on you great and then she decides to have a shower gets into the bath actually and he kills her with a vibrator that's poignant I think (laughs) really poignant because he performed for her pleasure which would in a way for some individuals will see that as unconventional right it's unconventional sex that she was just like hey no if, if, if things aren't working for you 
that's fine. There's other ways totally. in which you can pleasure me. But as a man, he's sitting there being like, no, there's something wrong with me. I need to fix this right away. Or maybe it's something wrong with you. And because he was a trauma survivor, mm-hmm. you know, in his own mind, things are kind of not all yeah. there. He seeks to punish the women yeah. for making him feel that way, feeling inadequate. Yeah. But especially because his the violence that happened towards him came from a, a person of authority. Yeah. Uh, his uncle was a police officer. Yeah. They were supposed to be, yeah. they are considered a symbol of authority and they're supposed to be protecting mm-hmm. the the youth and the innocent in this film. And Ken was a child and he has an authority figure who assaults, who assaults yeah. him. So of course he has this potential like fear of, of sex and independence and people who are strong. But then at the same time too, and this is a, we don't see this in the first film because the cops never show yep. up, but we see it in the second film and the third film. Police Ugh, are useless. Absolutely and useless. They're terrible. They're terrible. And yeah. they do and they do not believe our women who, who both occasions say there's something wrong and they're just like, You're wasting taxpayers' money, do not call us again and they hang yeah. up and then we have all these murders happen. And we're just yeah. like, because these guys didn't do their jobs, yeah. this young man ends up having a trauma response and ends up killing a whole bunch of people instead of getting the help that he needs. But then you have these women who are like, Hey, we've got creepy neighbors watching us, like Yeah. You know, and there's things that are not happening. You need to do something. You're like, no, stop calling us. These are pranks. No, they're absolutely useless. I mean that's a generalized trope in horror, but we definitely Mm-hmm. see it here and they just think it's a joke you know and they're not helpful whatsoever and you know in the third one there's even the cop that's like do you think maybe there's some truth to this and maybe you should check it out and he's like no I'm like oh cool at least the other guy's like you know what after my shift I'm going to go check this out too late but um yeah the cops are absolutely useless you know it was strange to me that we didn't really read about and I didn't look into this necessarily further but the shrine the whole whole truck shrine is very strange to, to me and like he's in it and it's like the shrine to his uncle sorry folks the shrine to his uncle the person that harmed him he has a shrine and he's like this is all for you uncle like he's doing this all for him so there's a miss like there's some miscommunication there's like a misdirect there's something going on there that that's it's not really relate to us as a viewer of this movie of the actual dy- true dynamic we know the harm that was done but we don't know the dynamic between between Ken and his uncle because why are you now doing all of this for him was your uncle some kind of true like big misogynist that hated women and now you're just like now I have to do this for you that art I don't really understand the shrine would you have a shrine to somebody that harmed you I don't know not unless it was like you're trying to put a curse or a hex on right. them and you're like okay I'm trying yeah. to harm you in some other way I'm trying to please him trying to appease him well we see that Ken also has a kind of a split personality and this article indicated that and so I watched for that yeah. this time and that is true as he's killing he acts like his uncle mm-hmm. and right, he says yeah. like he says things to the girls like you know as he kills them like saying things that we believe would have been said to Ken like you deserve this and blah 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 you're, you're coming out right. and then Ken responds in a very childlike persona like he comes out in distress and he doesn't want to participate in the harming he's like why are you making me do this don't make me do this mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and you're like what is happening yeah. especially the scene and we talked about this earlier where he is is over he's overpowering the one uh one character like essentially he's about to rape her and she's trying to calm him down be like it's okay ken we're not here yeah. to hurt you i'll do whatever you want her friends are watching and you're like and he's having this mental yeah, conflict between absolutely. like i don't want to do this but i do yeah, yeah you know because you you're you're bad and this is yeah it, it's a whole other area of going into how problematic male survivors of child sexual trauma 
work through their trauma. And I know that it, sometimes, and like you said, this is very right, this film could stand out on its own because we have other films where we have these men have a histories of being children, having terrible things done to them, and they turn around and do something terrible. And mm-hmm. one example would be, I just recently finished uh, True Detective mm-hmm. and our Yellow King, right? He makes a comment about something ha- terrible happening to him by all these people, and so now he needs to enact that same mm-hmm. violence towards <laughs> other. And that's an interesting thing to kind of look into. It's like, well, why? Because their masculinity was taken from them or was distorted in such a way and they feel monstrous because of what happened to them as children. They couldn't mm-hmm. grow up, you know, as sane men. It's really interesting, but this film really moves away from the trauma of women and brings it to the trauma of men. But yet these women are still experiencing trauma because the way that film also ends, very, ends very similar to the, our first film yeah. where they just brutally kill him and then they're crying and they're just like, oh my fuck? God, yeah. like, we just watched all our friends die. And we just killed a human being and like it's it's big yeah. it's big it's it's very real it's very big and you know in slashers a lot of people die and like yes these are popcorn movies but people die and people are killing people and for these young women they literally just even though it's somebody that has killed their friends and harmed them they have killed a human being that changes you that is going to change you so it's big and you're right it's still like even though there's some clumsy aspects to this movie and stuff there is you still kind of have that powerful ending where they finally band together and like beat and drill and kill this guy and they have to be like it's okay you can stop now like he's dead like it's cool let's wow now we just survive and here we are but this is a common trope in these films and all other Sasha films that often women have to bring themselves down to the same level of brutality that is being portrayed against them just to protect them themselves and that changes someone forever that you'll never be the same after you've murdered someone you know yeah and that's often what has to happen that's often what our final girl has to do because at the end of the day our killer is still a human being no no matter what type of monster he is unfortunately in summer party massacre 3 ken is just a a troubled young man who just had a trauma response and just went about his violent means but like russ thorne like you said, he's like a black guy Ugh. killer, but he's still like a human yes. being. He just has no soul yeah. <laughs> in the way he goes after people. So, yeah. But it's still traumatizing. It's still going to forever change yeah. you as an individual when you take someone else's life. Absolutely. I think the underlying theme for this one particularly is that any man can be an abuser. Yes. We have our cop uncle. You don't think your family's going to do it to you, but they do. You have your boyfriend, common, sadly. And so, again, we have the voyeurism through this, but men are super creepy. And I think overall, yeah, any man can be an abuser. Fear of men. So Morgan's our super extra creepy neighbor. Ew. Ew. I don't like him. So our very first kill in this movie is the classic, like, you should check your back seat, women, before you get into your car because men could be hiding back there to kill you. So men lurking in the shadows, men lurking and looking through your windows. They could be your neighbor. They could be your boyfriend. They can be your uncle cop. Next kill, a woman's walking alone at night. She's killed on the street. Most women are killed by a drill out of all of them. They're yep. pretty much killed by the drill. One guy, one of the guys gets killed by a lamp uh, signpost. Cool kill. Anyways, but women are still like in this. The general theme is that anybody can be an abuser. Watch out. He's your boyfriend um, and fear of men. Like very like realistic set pieces. Like I said, walking alone at night. Hey, don't do that because you're going to get killed, women. Not teaching men not to kill women at night. Check your back seat. So I just found that really interesting as I was like, we have this trauma of Ken, our male, our driller killer in this one. But again, the 
overarching theme of abuse and fear of men. Exactly, right? Lock your doors in your house. Make sure that no one lets themselves in. Both movies, the first one and the third one, the neighbors just freaking let themselves in and be like, oh, yep. I was just checking around to make sure that everything's yep. okay. Get the fuck out of my house. Yep. Who are yep. you, right? Yep. Like, Absolutely. Th- creepy. Yep. Get out. Yeah. Ugh. Ugh. <laughs> I don't like that. Yes, absolutely. Safe space. These are our safe spaces and men constantly coming in and violating it. Yep. Cars, our homes. Absolutely. So the last thing that we actually wanted to tackle, because it's something that's said very casually and regularly and often about this series. So we thought, let's tackle this. It is the overarching belief and feeling and opinion that the Slumber Party Massacre series and these these movies are feminist. Are these movies feminist because some a female wrote them? Are they reinforcing gender roles or are they actually subverting them? What makes a feminist movie? These are big words. These are bold claims. So we wanted to tackle this kind of once and for all. Because what does that really mean? I know Jess and I have talked, we've done like little blurbs about feminist horror, but not about like yeah. what makes a movie feminist. You know, we threw that label around, talked about bit, but I think that that one is. And we'll talk about what it means to be a feminist film. Okay, so feminism is a movement. This is a political movement. The definition of a feminist is advocating social, political, legal, and economic rights for women equal to those of men. It's an agenda. It's a political idea. It's a it's a it's a movement, right? So how can a movie be feminist, Jess? Well, a film could be feminist when we're having it when we're walking in with an agenda. There is political work that needs to be done that sparks thought and conversations around women's social status and the female experience. And when I was reading this article about that, I was like, that is so true. You can't just have films that are like, you know, we love women because we're getting equal rights in this movie and we see like a lack of sexism and a lack of misogyny, you know, and we see women go like toe to toe with men and taking care of business and they're strong female leads. That's great. We love seeing those on films and I constantly want to see them. But what are they actually saying? Are they saying anything about the movement, about you know, how are we are challenging the patriarchal norm, Mm -hmm. right? In the sense of, you know, these ideas of what female, like what happens to women when female violence, when violence is used against Mm -hmm. them. Okay. I would say that's a feminist film when we are showing the actual female experience of how uh, sexual violence can hurt a woman. And that's where I come in with like an idea of a feminist film, not necessarily just some woman kicking someone's ass in the movie. That's cool. She's a strong female character. And I love that. But is she saying anything else or is she still acting within the patriarchal structure of things? You can't just remove misogyny in the male gaze and be like, well, that's now feminist. No, it's bigger than that. Side note, there are many tests, quote unquote tests that exist out there that you could use to try to gauge whether or not your movie is like female friendly or feminist. An old, old, old one is the Bechtel test created in 1985. So that was, it asked whether a film has at least two female characters and at least one scene in in which they discuss something other than a man or men in general. It's bigger than that. We need more than that. But what was really funny was I learned the Furiosa test, which is your movie game book or play passes the Furiosa test if it incites men rights dipshits to boycott it. Thought it was funny. (laughs) That is cheeky. And I liked it. But again, we need more than that. Feminism is not a one size fits all. Empowerment's going to look different to everyone, okay? And not all of us are going to agree what a feminist film is, what it means. But 
And I want to actually get into Anna Biller's blog post about this because I came across this yeah. within a research. It was like a link within a link. And I was like, oh, we know Anna Biller has very strong opinions. I love that about her. And we're not going to get into her massive slasher piece that she did. No, we're going to get into her, her feminist one because she says, let's stop calling movies feminist. And I love this so much because it really was eye opening and I liked it a lot. So she was saying that calling a movie feminist when it reaches the bare minimum, which is portraying women as human beings is backwards. It's bigger than that. We need more than that. Like you said, Jess, like we need to show the challenges of being a woman in day-to-day society, challenging the person's viewpoint on what the struggle of being a woman is. It has to kind of change your mind or it has to show you real life experiences of women. And I really want to kind of go back because she made a really good point. And then I know you watched this documentary too, that we watched this documentary called This Changes Everything about women in film, not horn specific, just women in film. And Anna Biller brought this up too. And I thought this was so fascinating. So films of the 1930s, and again, going back to like the silent era, had tons of women involved. Tons of directors were women, tons of women were writers. And then a lot of movies were featuring women with like strong, smart, women. They had solid dialogue. There was solid character development. Many women, just characters and actors and everything. Those films were, you know, she was saying, Annabella was saying that these, these films were studies of human nature and stories about real people in domestic situations. So that's kind of what we need. And so when they come into the, the development of sound in film, and then women were stopped being hired as directors. And then the combined powers of all the production companies, which were all men, here we go. And then it became a man's world and we're still fighting to get out of that yeah still fighting to get out of that and also like the removal she brings up this interesting idea the removal of the censure codes right all of a sudden you know where we had you know the certain censorship we had the Hayes code and it was a kind of a idea of trying to because because we had so many female writers and directors at the time you know the the more classic films were like socializing men to you know teach men about like social goals and how to show men how to teach women with respect and empathy and have like relationship and partnerships but then we remove these uh, censor codes and all of a sudden we get these more violent and more kinkier expressions towards women in film all of a sudden we see less women in exactly (laughs) they lift and all of a sudden everything that apparently that men have been bottling up for years is all about explicit sex violence and anger and frustration being you know projected towards women and male fantasies as kelly says drive capitalism it drives the box office numbers we no longer if we want to if we have a glamorous woman in our films we don't want her to say anything we just want her to sit there and look pretty we don't want those noir femme fatales anymore because we don't want a dangerous woman we want to be able to keep her in her place yeah Yeah, absolutely. Quoted from Anna Biller's blog post here, to be feminist, a movie has to have the express purpose of educating its audience about social inequality between men and women, okay? So when you view a feminist film, it's going to challenge the way you think. It's going to portray the actual struggles of women. So it has to challenge you. I mean, again, you can feel empowerment by watching Wonder Woman. That's absolutely fine. I haven't seen that movie, so I can't actually fully comment on that. But having a woman in a lead role, sometimes that's enough for somebody. That is a start. That is, I think that adds into the bare minimum. We are human. We can have a lead role in something. I really liked her, uh, Anna Biller's uh, example, Blood and Black Lace from 1964. So she says, how do we feel about the young, beautiful models who are being dragged by the hair across the ground? Do we feel 
sorry for them or do we feel excited by the way the print process makes the red blood and the crushed blacks of the shadows pop next to their beautiful white skin? When female victims function as little more than props in Grand Grignol, art fashion spreads, chances are that the movie, while it may be stunning, stylish, or entertaining, is not feminist. There's more to it than that. There's absolutely more to it than that. So... I feel like sometimes the, the the label is thrown around too, too much, nonchalantly, too casually. I don't, I'm not necessarily sure if it's necessarily to its detriment, but it probably is, you know? Yeah, like I, I for myself, I feel like a feminist film is, like you said earlier, it's a feminism, it's a political movement, and a feminist film is going up against the misogynistic hatred towards women and is fronting it yes. in its films and it's challenging it and it's saying, no. This is what misogyny does to women, and this is how we need to change. This is how we need to educate people and to continue bringing that political awareness to the femi- to the feminist movement, as well as addressing all other areas that comes with feminism, which is also representation. Yeah. Not just having, you know, a checklist. I'm looking at you, the craft sequel. Ugh. That was just a checklist. So just adding the representation and just yeah. be like, yeah, we got this character, we got this character. Yeah. No, you need to incorporate all aspects of not just feminism, but of, of gender equality, also race and stuff like that, but also addressing these complex, nuanced characters yes. of these women. Authenticity. Yes, it's awesome to have... <laughs> yes, it's great. It's awesome to have these women who are strong characters on it, but if I can't relate to... Like, I think it's important to have strong female characters in movies and roles, but if I can't relate to them, it doesn't do much for me. Yeah. I can't... I'm not going to watch Wonder Woman, and I will watch one. I haven't watched it. I'm not watching it because I can't relate to her as a character. Mm-hmm. She's already a strong, badass woman and stuff like that. That's great. Yeah. But I can't relate to her. I don't feel any authentic connection to help me grow as an individual. She's going to be a great, perfect role model for someone, maybe. Mm-hmm. But she still operates within the patriarchal structure of things. Absolutely. Like, she's not smashing it. She's not, like, walking into, yeah. you know, Miramax and being like, hey, let's see more women among this, this group of people. Let's, you know, hire more directors, uh, female directors. Let's hire more female writers. Let's, you know, let's make sure the salaries are all equal and yeah. not just more men are being paid more than other And So here's some helpful tips to make your shit better, folks. Physical sexualization. Stop. Don't use that to introduce women. Oh my god, the other aspect of that, I'm just thinking about it now, that documentary This Changes Everything was how women are described in scripts and in screenplays. It's always about their physical appearance. Men weigh less, so women, it's always about their physical appearance their exterior. So don't do that. No male saviors. We don't need that. We don't need it in the Slumber Party Massacre, that's for sure, right? Representation matters, like you said, Jess. Authenticity, like you said, don't just add them in to add them in. Make them human, because we are. Let's make people human. Also, give women screen time, dialogue, development, and agency. Oh, right. Make them human. (laughs) You know? Not archetypes, not caricatures of human beings. Make them actual human beings. Yeah, stop stereotyping. Stop putting women in gender stereotypes in all their films. Like, I swear to God, Disney, if you kill another mother off, I'm just going to be done with you. Like, why Why do women always have to die in your films? Like, yep. women are women are nuanced. We're creative. We're all over the place. Yep. We're good women. We're bad women. We're all, yep. you know, we're not wives and mothers. Those, no, those are not our two roles. Or, the, I, I'm sorry, the other third angle is the, the independent bitch. Yep. That's like, I feel like those are the only categories for women in film. Yep. The, the virgin, the mother, and the bitch. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, so final verdict, Jess. Do you think the Slumber Party Massacre series is a feminist series? I do not. And I know that's not going to be a popular opinion among people. I know that some people really enjoy these films and see these feminist elements. In it, and there are. 
I'm not saying there isn't. Like, they do bring up some interesting issues in regards to sexual violence and the trauma that women experience at the hands of an, a sexual aggressor. However, the misogyny is very still present in these films, and I know that the directors all themselves did not want them, but they were within these constraints because at the same time, too, while they were still given opportunities by Roger Corman, they were not being paid equally as the other male directors in his environment. And so I, it, to me, there's still a very strong sense of misogyny and hatred towards women in these films. And I know that that's not necessarily a tent by these directors, but that they were in those, the social constraints. So having done, watched these films and done the research and talking with other people and watching other, you know, films, I was just like, mm, I don't see them as very feminist. My final verdict, I think these are incredibly strong wonderful, magnificent, game-changing, subversive, female-centric films portraying very important, needed, positive examples of sisterhood and female friendship, but they are not feminist films. And that's my final verdict on that. Okay, we're going to rank our films. Brief explanations of which. Jess, you go first. And I know what it is already. <laughs> you already know what it is. It's one, two, and three. The way they all came out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Do I need to explain? The first one has much more interesting themes to me mm -hmm. that I enjoy and that I can talk about and relate to. In special, and then it carries on in the second film where I can relate to that. It gets a little too campier for my liking, gets a little lost in the weeds, but that's because we're on the Nightmare on Elm Street craze and everyone loves their rubber reality at the time. And then like the third one just loses me completely. I get bored every time I watch mm -hmm. it. I'm like, mm -hmm. oh, this is still happening? Okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yep. That's... How about yourself? I am 213. That's not surprise. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Besides the second one just being a, a film type that I am drawn to, it's fun. It's wacky. It's got wonderful practical effects. Doing this research and reading the film in the way that we talked about today solidified it as part as number one on my list number two as part one on my list it is a fantastic fantastical interesting film and I can have fun at the same time which I enjoy the first one is a classic it's smart it's interesting it's a very effective slasher I love our characters I wish Jackie was in it more but um yep classic overlooked slasher film the third one, I agree, less compelling than the, the other ones. I'm sad that they went the route of the male trauma survivor. Again, valid. I just wish it wasn't in this series. I wanted, they could have spun it in a different way, but it's no. So that, two, one, three, and you're one, two, three. There we go. There we go. <laughs> Literally just opposite yeah. of each other. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's move on to Spencer's final thoughts. And now we've arrived at Spencer's final thoughts, this time over a nice warm cup of tea provided by our sponsor, Brutalities. Since we're spinsters, we obviously love tea. One of our favorite things is to curl up with a movie on a cold, rainy day. Or with a good book. Absolutely. With a mug of delicious hot tea. Brutalities is a company that we discovered at a horror convention and fell in love with. They have a variety of tea blends from black, white, and more, but what stood out to us was not just how yummy they were, but their spooky and metal-inspired names. With Screamsicle and Children of the Candy Corn, we thought Brutalities were a perfect match made in... <laughs> 
I am obsessed with tiramisu. And I'm currently obsessed with Banana Bell. So go to Brutalities.com to grab some for yourself with listener code SPINSTER15 to get 15% off your purchase. For our Canadian fans, please contact them directly before ordering for shipping quotes. So now that we have our tea, let's put these spirits to rest. All right. So my final thoughts in regards to these films was it took me to a dark place. When I watched the first one, I went to a dark place. My thoughts as I was going was... I'm watching the first film and I'm like, these kills are purely random and they have no real backstory. But guess what? The drill killer is just pure male violence towards women, especially in regards to the use of the drill, our phallic symbol. It kills women. He hunts and he stalks any woman and just kills her for just being pretty, for just walking the streets alone at night, just because she's just for being a woman and they're unconventional women. And just because they are women, it's this whole film, these film series is a symbol of violence towards women and how we experience this at the hands of men. The end reaction of these films get me each time. The second one, less, but it's still part of that. These films are about trauma responses. These No one is walking away from these, wiping their hands and saying, glad that night is over. These women's lives are forever changed. And this is the reality of the female experience when you've been assaulted by someone, either a perfect stranger or someone close to you in your life. And your life is forever changed and you're always constantly fighting for your life later. One of the things I also really enjoy about these films and why I do return to them, even though I don't think of them as feminist films, is that they highlight, as Kelly said, the importance of the female bonding, particularly in a world where men are creeps and they use their privilege to violate our safe spaces. The Slumber Party is a safe space for women. We are introduced to them as teenage girls, and we even will do them later on as, as older adults. We call them ladies' nights now, <laughs> and we can drink wine, stuff like that. But these are there are safe spaces. This is where a time where women are allowed to let loose and feel free with one another, and they can get personal and talk about things. But then when we get men involved, it becomes all about them, and all of a sudden we are performing for them. We already have to perform for men every other day of our lives. Can we not just have a place where we don't have to do that, where we can just eat pizza and have a good time and not have defend ourselves against a creepy neighbor or a boyfriend who decides he wants to bang his girlfriend that night and just can't let her be with her friends for a couple hours or it's a stranger who becomes fixated on them and just feels like they need to get something out to quiet the voices in their mind I don't know but those are my final thoughts on the Summer Party Massacre series it's a series that as much as I'm not a slasher fan it's one that I enjoy and I will go back to because I see something in these films each time and I think they're really interesting and really important films because when you do sit down with them and you look at them critically they have something to say and and it may get muddled in certain areas but if you're able to look past the muddled areas you they, they have some value and I will definitely recommend them to anyone I love slasher films folks I love them. They're fun. I love them. And also, folks, slumber parties, stuff that you see in the slumber parties and the slumber party massacre, that stuff can and does happen. Okay, there is there may be a slight exaggeration, but I love especially in I think it's the third one, like they're getting topless, they're stripping. What's wonderful about it is that it's again, you brought it up, Jess, this is a safe space, but getting naked amongst a bunch of your friends what is a safe, safer place than doing that? All of these women, they compliment each other. They're very positive to one another. There's no like weird catty bitchiness that you see amongst any of these women. These are fun slumber parties. This is what we do. We get together. We are messy. We get in our comfy. We take off our bras. We get comfy cozy and we drink. We probably get drunk. Maybe we get high. We talk about things that are important to us. And overall, we're just letting loose and having a good time. Because if you can't do that with your closest gal friends, who are you going to do? that with truly john kenneth muir said that slasher films provoke a feeling of catharsis so we can we as women and we as people 
can experience violence from the safety of our own home. We can have the revenge fantasies of slashers or other type of movies, but our negative thoughts are portrayed on screen and that can help us remedy our despair into the realities of our world. There was a backlash on slashers in the 80s. Again, John Kenneth Muir said, Slasher movies don't make audiences meaner. They simply take the real world as it is already and demonstrates to teens that they can survive it, especially with the right skill set. Women need slasher films, especially the ones where we survive in the end, because as we know, outside of the film world, that is not so often the case. Women need slasher films. For about women in slasher films who create slasher films, Amy Holden Jones said, It's okay for men to make exploitation films. Women are supposed to be above that. Women have a wide range of emotions and rage and violence are a part of us all because we are human beings. It's acceptable and even expected that men will create sex and violence filled movies because that's acceptable for them to express, but it's not for women. We also love provocative material, scandalous, controversial films, books, plays. So let us explore our range of emotions because we aren't all just tears and sorrow. We too have dark thoughts. And that ends our first listener request episode on the Slumber Party Massacre series. We want to thank Dance with the Dead for our intro and outro music, Row Beast, and for Brandon for all his work on our promotional materials, and also to all you listeners. We want to remind you to follow us on our website, spinstersofhorror.com, on all of our social media, so Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, search for the Spinsters of Horror. We also have a Facebook group called Spinsters of Horror Coven. And folks, we now have a Letterboxd account, so please follow us there at Horror Spinsters. And just letting you know, we also have a YouTube channel. We're going to show the throw that out there now. Look for us under Spinsters of Horror. We do have some videos. We record all of our Spinster versus Spinster. We have some of our special recordings like Final Girls Berlin Festival for Satanic Feminism. So if you want to watch us instead of just listening to us, please follow us on there. As well, please rate and review us on iTunes because we want to get our work out there to as much people as possible. We have merch, folks, so please visit TeePublic to purchase our t-shirts, and then click that donate button if you like what we do on our website. Surprise, Sydney! Ah, next month we return to the 90s horror icons and Woodsboro to discuss a favorite series of ours, Scream, and the iconic killer, Ghostface. Since we covered the first film in episode two of our podcast, we'll focus more so on the sequels. Until then, remember, the future of fear is female. <laughs>